This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 37. The Ancient World, A Summary. Part 2. Seventeen fifty BCE. By seventeen fifty BCE in Mesopotamia, the old Assyrian Empire was firmly established around its central cities of Ashur and Nineveh. To the south, the Babylonian Empire under King Hammurabi had become a considerable force. In Egypt, the Middle Kingdom was united and expanding to have influence over a considerable length of the Nile. The Minoans were thriving in the Mediterranean, building palaces and controlling trade routes. In both China and the Americas, culture and civilization were steadily progressing forwards. But the same cannot be said for the Indus Valley, where culture and civilization were in decline. So that represents a general overview of the human world during the 18th century BCE. However, the world would change, and rapidly. In Egypt, the Middle Kingdom would come under threat from a new influx of Asiatics venturing into the Nile Delta. These people would be preserved in history as the Hyksos, and their origins are still debated to this day. The Egyptian pharaohs would be forced into Upper Egypt, and Egypt itself would be split up once again. The Middle Kingdom was over, and the Second Intermediate Period had begun. From a technological point of view, one of the most significant developments attributed to the Hyksos invasion of Egypt is the introduction of military chariots that would be a significant feature of Near East warfare in the second millennium BCE. It seems incredible to think that such a noteworthy kingdom as the Egyptians would not have either discovered, been aware of or integrated chariots into their army. Historians are very interested in the development of chariotry as it is an important aspect of human development linked to the domestication of the horse and the invention of the wheel. If we go back to the standard of ore, which was the box excavated in Sumer that dates back to the mid-3rd millennium BCE, then we can see something that has been described as onager-drawn wagons. Personally, I would describe these wagons as a type of chariot though others are a little bit more tentative to do so. The Sumerian vehicles carry two men, but may also carry equipment, so they may have been used for multiple purposes, whereas the later chariots are more likely to have been built for speed. It seems astonishing that Egyptians were not using chariots when wheeled, horse-drawn wagons were being used in Mesopotamia maybe as much as a thousand years previous so therefore it does make sense to assume that chariotry was an Asiatic development. Interestingly, it does appear that early Mycenaeans of mainland Greece, who were emerging around this time, also used chariots. We're not totally sure of the origin of the Mycenaeans, but we do believe that they spoke an Indo-European language, and we believe that they used chariots. So this would suggest that the Mycenaeans migrated westwards from Asiatic lands. 
Later in the millennium, we would see chariots appear in the lands of China. So it either developed independently or was introduced to Chinese lands and quite possibly by the people of the Eurasian steppe, an area that is known as the likeliest place of origin of the Indo-European languages and the likeliest place of origin of the domesticated horse. When talking of the Eurasian steppe and the people who occupied it before this period, we attribute it as the origination of the people who migrated to Anatolia and ultimately became the mighty Hittite Empire. The Hittites also spoke an Indo-European language and the Hittites would later integrate huge numbers of chariots into their own military armies. So we can see more connection here to the Eurasian steppe being a place of innovation and potentially a place of origination for many migrations outwards. We also spoke of a decline in the Indus Valley civilization based in cities such as Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro. The people of the Indus Valley civilization appeared to abandon their cities around this time and migrate away, possibly southwards, deep into the Indian subcontinent. It appears that a new wave of migration into the Indus Valley happened in the aftermath and these are described as the Aryans, once again an Indo-European peoples. When studying the development and migration of Indo-European languages and chariot evolution, it may be worth referring to the Sintashta culture, who may have been one of the first cultures to have used spoked wheels. Previous to this, the wheels may have been solid, but the manufactured spoke wheel would have been lightweight and likely to absorb shock much better, and it might be this factor that could be the difference between wagons and chariots. The new spoked wheels would have been efficient and fit for warfare. The Sintashta were based on the Eurasian steppe and could have been the original Aryans and they were certainly using some of the earliest chariots. So we can see some very suggestive connections between the domestication of horses the development of efficient chariotry and the outward migration of Indo-European languages, all of which point backwards in time to the Eurasian steppe. Excavations of Sintashta sites demonstrate that this culture had quite an advanced metallurgic technology and it could be suggested that this may have given the subsequent Hittite empire the confidence to begin using iron and this earliest iron working is explored in our episode 5. The Hittites led by Mershali I were responsible for one of the most significant events of this period, the sacking of Babylon, the city that was the capital of the once great first dynasty of Babylon with King Hammurabi at its helm. Now Babylon was destroyed by the Hittites and the city was fair game for the Kassites who were residing nearby. From the 16th century BCE, Babylonia would be controlled by the Kassites, and the first dynasty was over. It is believed that speedy chariots and iron weapons were put to use during this raid. Iron working would not become commonplace in the world until much later, and particularly during the first millennium BCE. Bronze was still the most popular metal for practical purposes, and nowhere more impressively than in Shang, China, where piecemold production skills were producing fine bronze wares in large numbers. Some of the Shang artifacts appear to be animal-shaped vessels that were offered to burial sites, so apparently manufactured for ceremonial use. Often, food would be placed within these vessels before they were placed in the graves. Bronze working had also reached Southeast Asia, as is evident with the Feng Nguyen culture of 
Vietnam, who were present during this period. Bronze was very much still the most popular metal of the second millennium BCE, with weapons and armour mainly being made from bronze. We mentioned that the Mycenaeans of mainland Greece were significantly warlike by comparison to their Cretan neighbours, the Minoans, whose isolation on Crete may have enabled them to survive unchallenged and therefore not need to spend significant resources on unnecessary military expense. The Minoans were more well known for their palaces. The Mycenaeans did build their own palaces, but they needed to be fortified. Not only did the Mycenaeans have bronze armour, but they also had impressive helmets made from the tusks of boars. What happened next is a matter for fierce debate. Evidence suggests that at some point during the course of the second millennium BCE, there was a period of global cooling. Some of the oldest trees on the planet are over 4,000 years old, and by studying the rings on these old trees, we can get a climatic read that certainly demonstrates a period of cooling. When attempting to establish the cause of this cooling, one particular event is at the forefront in the minds of many experts. It is the eruption of the volcano called Thyra on the Cycladic island of Santorini that is suggested to be responsible. It is not possible to state exactly what impact the eruption of Thyra had on the world at the time as there are no written accounts. However, it is believed that the eruption could not have occurred without consequence, such was its magnitude. It is possible that the eruption of Thera could have had a negative impact on the neighbouring Minoans of Crete, which opened the door for the Mycenaeans to take advantage of the weakened culture and assert their authority over them. However, this is just pure speculation and it is also feasible that the Mycenaeans had enough about them to assert their authority over the Minoans without the assistance of a volcano. We do know that the Mycenaeans adapted the Minoan Linear A writing script to create a writing script for their own language called Linear B. Interestingly, the expansion of the Hittite Empire hit a stumbling block around this time. Could it be that the eruption of Thera had an effect on the Hittites? The fact that the Hittites started manufacturing iron weaponry and ventured all the way down to Babylon seems out of the ordinary. There is no evidence to suggest all of these things are related, but the Hittite Empire certainly did suffer from internal unrest during this period and were not able to prevent the emergence of the powerful new Mitanni kingdom to their east. Did the eruption of Thera cause a displacement of peoples southwards into Egypt, the one that we recognise as the Hyksos? We just don't know at this point. However, we do know that ultimately the Egyptians were able to rise up against the Asiatic Hyksos and drive them out of Egypt. This is all thanks to Pharaoh Armos, who would emerge from Thebes and establish a united Egypt, much like Mentehotep II did before him when he established the Middle Kingdom. However, this was now the New Kingdom of Egypt. The new kingdom would see its pharaohs buried in specially created tombs such as those found at the Valley of the Kings. Gone was the pyramid building culture of previous Egyptian kingdoms. The sites of these new royal Egyptian tombs were often accompanied by colossal regal statues of the pharaohs within. The chief Egyptian deity would be Amun-Ra an amalgamation of the Theban deity Amun and the sun god Ra. The new kingdom would be represented by Egypt's 
18th dynasty, also known as the Thutmosid dynasty, and a golden age of Egyptian history. Thutmose I would reassert Egyptian influence on the northern cataracts of the Nile River as the Middle Kingdom pharaoh Senesret I did before him. During this period we see the emergence of leavening agents in bread which is commonplace in most varieties of bread sold in the western world today. In the modern world we most commonly use yeast as the leavening agent. We also see the use of the water clock which the Egyptians would have used to measure time according to how much water had passed from the top of the clock to the bottom. Indus Valley civilization cities had now been abandoned and an Indo-European language speaking branch which we call the Aryans or alternately Indo-Iranians had moved into the area. These people wrote their texts in the ancient language of Sanskrit and it is these people who are believed to have written the first Vedas which are sacred religious texts closely linked to Hinduism. 1500 BCE It is thought to be around this time that the Mycenaeans could be considered the dominant culture of the modern Greek lands, including the islands of the Aegean Sea and the Minoan island of Crete, and this position would be valid for the foreseeable future. The Mycenaeans would take control of those trade links which made this the most advanced area of Europe during the second millennium BCE, with trade links extending to other parts of the Mediterranean, such as Sicily for example. In the Near East we mentioned that the Mitanni Kingdom were exploiting a time of comparative weakness of the Hittite Kingdom. The Mitanni would carve out a position of power in northern Mesopotamia. The Mitanni would sack the Assyrian capital city of Ashur and subjugate the Assyrians, effectively ruling over their lands. However, this would serve as an indicator that the political landscape of the Near East had irreversibly altered. Where the powers of the Near East had previously carved out their own empires by subjugating and conquering local and neighbouring tribes, now the major powers were beginning to interfere in each other's affairs. Firstly, as we already know, the Hittites sacked Babylon and Babylonia had been taken over by the Kassites. Then, as just mentioned, the Mitanni rose up in a power vacuum and sacked Ashur. The New Kingdom Egyptians also had imperial ambitions in the Near East, which encroached on the lands of the Levant, which were also of interest to the Mitanni and the Hittites who were starting to get their act together and reclaim lost ground following their brief period of regroup. This would therefore be a period where diplomatic relationships had to improve as it was not feasible for all nations to use all of their resources in military campaigns against each other. Certainly, if two of the nations were using all of their military resources against each other, then the other nations would be happy to allow them to waste their military resource against each other and wait to exploit the warring nations afterwards while in their weakened state. Therefore, it would sometimes provide a better solution if these nations looked for ways to strengthen their position in the wider world in which they now existed and needed to survive in. We can see some significant political marriages and diplomatic relationships developing between the Hittites, the Mitanni, the New Kingdom Egyptians and the Kassite Babylonians. The first of these entities to perish would not be down to international issues but internal ones. The Assyrian element of the Mitanni kingdom rose up against their overlords and overthrew them, causing the end of the Mitanni kingdom and creating the Middle Assyrian Empire. 
This would also represent a glorious period in Egyptian history. Thutmose I, Thutmose II and Thutmose III would all be highly influential Egyptian pharaohs in regards to expanding their territory. The new capital city of Thebes in Upper Egypt would be near to the huge New Kingdom ceremonial royal necropolis famed for its Valley of the Kings and for its colossal statues representing the great pharaohs to have reigned over this mighty kingdom. The Egyptian New Kingdom reached a pinnacle in its development by the reign of Amenhotep III, but no one could have foreseen what would happen during the 14th century BCE. It may not be a great surprise to learn that some ancient cultures developed sun worship. The sun is the brightest object in the sky and turns the darkness of night into bright days. We believe that some Bronze Age cultures of this period such as the Nordic culture of Scandinavia practiced sun worship during this period and to some degree the Egyptians practiced sun worship but it was not exclusive. That is until the pharaoh Amenhotep IV decided that he wanted to make worship of the sun disk called Aten exclusive to the Egyptian New Kingdom, even changing his own name to Akhenaten and moving the capital city to Amarna. The Egyptian people were not keen to let go of their polytheistic traditions though and the Egyptian kingdom suffered due to having a pharaoh more interested in the religious direction as opposed to imperial consolidation and ambitions. The Hittites would be able to reclaim Levantine lands with relative ease and this would continue until after Akhenaten's reign and Artanism was abolished by his son Tutankhamun with the assistance from the priests of Amun a new dynasty in Egypt would bring the start of the huge reign of Ramesses II. Ramesses II would be a master propagandist, creating many temples and colossal statues dedicated to himself. Quite likely the most famous of Ramesses II's temples is the one built at Abu Simbel, which was built to commemorate his glorious victory at the Battle of Kadesh against the Hittites. However, there are two sides to every story and the Hittite account of the battle tells the story of a great ambush of the Egyptian army which prevented them from capturing the city of Kadesh. In the aftermath of the battle, the Hittites under their new monarch, Hattusili III, were happy to negotiate a peace treaty with Ramesses II in the face of the growing power of the Assyrians under their leader, Shalmaneser I. The Assyrians would rise to their greatest power during this period under the rule of Shalmaneser's son, Tikulti Ninurna I. Although the Hittites and the Egyptians had been competing for the lands of the Levant over many years, it was still a place of great culture and development and also a place of great myth and legend. We know that modern alphabets migrated out of Egypt from their hieroglyphic script, reaching the area around the city of Ugarit, where it would develop to become the Phoenician alphabet, a proto-alphabet which would be the ancestor of many modern alphabets. This may not have been the only significant migration during this period, as the pharaoh named in sacred scriptures describing the exodus of the Jewish people out of Egypt by Moses may have been Ramesses II. The event describes the probable beginnings of Judaism where the agricultural peoples of the lands of modern Israel became the home of the ancient scriptures which would become the Old Testament of the Bible. Elsewhere in the world the ceremonial centre cultures of South America continued to flourish with the likes of Sechin Alto and the emergence of Chabin de Huantar, 
which would become highly influential in the future. The ancient Peruvians would master the art of bronze working, while the cultures of Mesoamerica would begin producing pottery. The people of the Lapita culture had successfully colonised Melanesia, including the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia and Fiji. The Shang dynasty continued to rule over vast swathes of Chinese lands. 1200 BCE The death of Ramesses II marked the passing of a great era in history. We can consider this the end of the late Bronze Age period of great kingdoms and empires of the Mediterranean and Near East. Letters written in the Levantine city of Ugarit, which would ironically be associated with the birth of modern alphabets, tell a story of desperate bewilderment as the people of Ugarit had been apparently abandoned by their Hittite overlords in the face of a mysterious foreign threat. The Hittites appear to have lost their position and had to revert to protecting their homelands. The outpost of Ugarit was not a priority. The Hittites would ultimately be unsuccessful in defending their homelands with their capital city, Hattusha, being destroyed and the Hittites dispersing into a political wilderness. The threat is unlikely to have come from the Mycenaeans as their own cities were also being destroyed and the beginnings of a Greek Dark Age were about to start. Sea peoples began to raid Egyptian lands, sparking the beginning of the end of the New Kingdom. Ramesses III was considered to be the last great Egyptian ruler and he likely lost his life due to an internal conspiracy to overthrow him. We can't be sure how closely related all of these collapses of empires are to each other, but it was also around this time that the Elamites sacked Babylon, ending the centuries-old Kassite kingdom of Babylonia. This catastrophic sequence of events is called the Late Bronze Age Collapse and was something we focused on closely during episode 6. We have talked enough about the events of the Late Bronze Age Collapse during the course of this volume, so let's focus on what happened in the aftermath. One of the cultures that may have emerged as a result of the events of the Late Bronze Age Collapse may be the Philistines. Speculation suggests links to the cultures of Greeklands and a possibility of it emerging from the remnants of the sea people who were prevented from settling the lands of Egypt. Could it be that displaced Mycenaeans attempted to settle Egypt, failed and subsequently moved along the coast to the Levant to become the Philistines? Make your own mind up about that one. Biblical scriptures tell us a story of how King David, as a young man, fought against the Philistines before becoming the king of a united monarchy of Israel. David would begin construction of a sacred temple in Jerusalem, which would be completed by his son Solomon, who would take over as king of the united monarchy. Megiddo would also become an important royal fortress of Israel. After Solomon's death, the united monarchy of Israel would fragment, with the kingdom of Judea becoming independent. The Egyptian New Kingdom broke down and fragmented after the late Bronze Age collapse, and a period of civil unrest prevailed as different entities battled for power in their respective regions. The Kushites of the Nubian lands to the south of Egypt were able to gain a strong foothold during this period as a consequence of the absence of a mighty Egyptian kingdom to their north. 
the significant advances in the aftermath of the Late Bronze Age collapse happened in the Assyrian Empire, but not before some very lean times which almost saw Assyria disappear off the map altogether. Aramean peoples were settling the lands of the extended Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians had to protect their heartlands around their major cities. The Assyrians remained pinned into their heartlands for a number of generations before they would build the military resource to be able to respond to their situation and they would do this by mastering the use of iron. Iron would now become the preferred metal of weaponry. The Bronze Age was over and the Iron Age was beginning. The Assyrians traditionally spoke Akkadian but as they began to expand their empire once again by taking back the lands that the Arameans had settled they also adopted the Aramaic language as their standard tongue. The Assyrians would continue to take lands especially while under the rule of expansionist monarchs such as Ashurnasipal II. Even though the Assyrians briefly subjugated the kingdom of Urartu to their north, they could not and probably saw no value in expanding northwards, with plenty of opportunities in other directions. The absence of the Hittites and the Egyptians from Levantine politics enabled city-states north of Israel to develop strong Mediterranean trade links, especially in the absence of the Mycenaeans. These city-states would come to be known collectively as the Phoenicians and they would look outwards at the opportunities to rekindle the trade links of the Mediterranean and develop artisanry within their cities that would be the envy of many of their neighbours. The Phoenicians would establish the trade port of Carthage in North Africa that would become significant in later times. Elsewhere in the world, some fortified hilltop sites emerged in Western Europe, while another culture of people rose to significance in mainland Central Europe. They would be a peoples who cremated their elite and buried them in urns alongside artefacts, thereby giving them the name the Urnfield Culture and suggested to have spoken an early form of Celtic, which suggests that they would have been an Indo-European migration, possibly from the Eurasian steppe. It is also possible that a migration of culture from the Eurasian steppe is also what introduced the chariot to Shang dynasty of China. The introduction of chariots was not enough to stop the demise of the Shang dynasty, who were conquered by the Zhou dynasty. It may be the case that there is still much to learn in regard to the cultures of China during this period. Deep into Chinese lands, away from the Yellow River, a site has been discovered at Sangsing Dui, where the people were creating huge bronze statues, some as tall as four metres in height. It could be that these peoples were allies of the Zhou, who overthrew the Shang. The Western Zhou dynasty represents the first and earliest Zhou dynasty and began when King Wu of Zhou defeated the Shang and claimed the mandate from heaven to validate his claim to the monarchy. The Western Zhou made a geographical survey of Chinese lands. It is also around this time that we see evidence of wet rice cultivation and bronze working migrate to the Korean Peninsula. Jade was still considered to be precious and valuable in China with its attractive colour and its spiritual significance. In the lands of India we can see the further expansion of the Aryan migration reaching the Ganges River and settling the lands there as well as the composition of more sacred Vedas scriptures and the development of the significant Brahmi writing script which would inspire many later scripts. 
the earliest Ganges river civilizations would have been the origins of the emergence of Jainism as a religion, with the city of Varanasi being identified as the birthplace of the first teacher of Jainism, namely Parshvanatha. What many consider to be the heartland of the Proto-Indo-European languages in the Eurasian steppe appears to be where the Scythians were now living, but their lifestyle represented one that was a throwback to the days of nomadic pastoralism, more commonly associated with Neolithic Age cultures. In the Americas, the Olmec culture would emerge and flourish in Mesoamerica, distinguished by their rubber production and discussed at length during episode 31. Rubber balls may have been used in ball games which were common with cultures of the Americas going forwards including the Mayans, the Incas and the Aztecs. The Olmecs would initially set up their capital at San Lorenzo before it moved to La Venta during its later period. The site of Chabin de Huantar would become hugely significant in a spiritual sense to a wide range of cultures of modern Peru, with pilgrimages from far and wide centering on the site for many centuries. The settlement at Poverty Point emerged during this period in the modern day state of Louisiana in the United States, which we know to be strongly linked to the expansive trade network which had come to be a significant aspect of the North American cultures of the eastern lands of the United States. The Adena culture was also emerging further north and to the south of the Great Lakes with their ceremonial burial mound culture not visibly unlike the Kurgans built by the Scythians of the Eurasian steppe around this same time period. 800 BCE so finally, we reach a point of transition, where we look to leave the ancient world behind and venture into the classical world. We have touched upon the classical world once or twice during the podcast. In episode 7, we discussed the eventual collapse of the Assyrian Empire. In episode 9, we discussed the early years of the Carthaginians and their Sicilian Wars. In episodes 19 and 20, we talked of the Egyptians after the New Kingdom, right up to the Ptolemaic dynasties and the time of the very famous Cleopatra VII. In the next volume of the podcast, we will focus on the emergence of the Roman Republic and the later Roman Empire. Its humble beginnings are a matter for debate depending on your desire for stories of folklore or archaeological evidence. We know that the Etruscan culture was in Italy around this time. A village would be established at the top of the Palatine Hill, which is one of the seven hills of Rome. The alternative story would be the story of the twin brothers Romulus and Remus, the sons of the war god Mars, who were raised by a she-wolf called Lupa on the Palatine Hill. They would be the founders of Rome according to Roman tradition. We will also be looking at the wonderful world of ancient Greece whose roots were from around this time also. The Greek cities were being rebuilt and would become a fascinating culturally connected group of city-states that would have a compelling relationship with each other. Cities such as Athens, Sparta and Thebes would constantly compete with each other and this competition would culminate ceremonially in an athletics festival at Olympia every four years which we commonly know today as the ancient Olympic Games in honour of the Greek god Zeus. Great traditional stories are written by this new Greek culture describing the Greek gods and their relationship with the people of Greece in the past, and their war with the Trojans, and their ultimate conquest of Troy, which we explored in episode 25. 
the Greeks would also expand to become a seafaring trade culture, much like the Phoenicians had, with both the Greeks and Phoenicians competing for control of Mediterranean trade routes. We will also talk more of the Chinese cultures and how the Zhou dynasty's successes would lead to warfare as the Western Zhou were replaced by the Eastern Zhou and China would become a place of unrest before the emergence of the Han dynasty much later. This was the Iron Age, a replacement for the Bronze Age before it and the precursor to the period we refer to as Classical Antiquity. The art of ironworking steadily spread out from the Near East where it had originated. The people of Haustadt culture represent the earliest Celtic people who spread out into the lands of the Urnfield culture which preceded it. The Haustadt would transition from bronze to iron during this period and would represent the start of the story of the Celts which we will explore more in greater detail in Volume 3. Ironworking would spread southwards in Africa too, as sub-Saharan cultures would use iron for the first time. The Kushites of Nubia would even conquer Egyptian territory and establish themselves as the pharaohs of Egypt for a period, which is something that always seemed to be extremely unlikely given the power of Egypt in centuries gone by. The masters of ironworking though had to be the mighty Assyrian Empire who were by far the largest empire that the world had ever seen at its peak during the Iron Age which marks our transition from the stories of the ancient world to the stories of the classical world. During the 8th century Assyria were the premier imperial machine and their focus would be the lands declared sacred by biblical scriptures, specifically Israel and Judea. While the first great prophet of Israel, Amos, was preaching in the Holy Land, Tiglath-Pileser III would be groomed to become the ultimate warrior monarch of the Assyrian Empire. Both Tiglath-Pileser III and his son Shalmaneser V would terrorise the Israelites and deport them from their homelands in a bid to diminish their cultural bonds and effectively Assyrianise them. And yes, I think I did just invent that word. In one capacity, this would have the effect of uniting future followers of biblical religions by highlighting their struggle and honouring the sacrifices of their ancestors. To those who dismiss this as religious fantasy, it must be stated that Assyrian artefacts acknowledge and honour their victories and conquests over the peoples of this land. Religion and history are entwined throughout our past and as such must be mutually respected if we are to present an unbiased view of human history, which this podcast will strive to do. It might be therefore that the Assyrian conquest of Israel, as described back in episode 8, is a poignant marker that represents the end of volume 2 and the beginning of volume 3. And there we have it. We got there. We got there in the end. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for those of you who have listened to all 37 episodes of this volume you did well and I am sure that you are full of knowledge now and now you can talk to anybody at a very competent level about this period of human history and for those of you who followed it for those of you who've followed the journey of Mesopotamia and all these early empires that have been competing against each other for all of you that have listened to the Egyptian story from ancient Egypt, from its humble beginnings back from the days of the Nama palette, right through to the Ptolemaic kingdom, which we discovered um, during this volume, I'm sure you have a fantastic knowledge now that you can share with anybody. Now, you know, if you go anywhere such as, like, for example, myself, I'm, I'm quite near to the British Museum, 
if you go there there's a huge Egyptology section and you could probably take so much away from it now that you have a fundamental knowledge of it so I hope that all of you that have listened to this volume now really feel enriched and full of knowledge when it comes to this period in history. Well done, congratulations and thank you. Now if you want to support the podcast, you're welcome to do so. You can make a donation through the Patreon page. In order to access that page, the easiest way would be to go through the historyofthewordpodcast.com website. And if you make a monthly donation to the podcast, you will become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as has Dennis Delange has uh, become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week. Thank you, Dennis, and welcome. Uh, Your monthly contribution will go towards the equipment and books that are required to make this podcast and the expenses such as the website and the podcast hosting platform. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast and making it much easier for me to produce this one going forward into the future. So thank you. If you don't want to make a financial contribution, that's fine. This podcast will remain a free resource and we just encourage you to rate and review the podcast because that also has a lot of value in terms of exposing the podcast for more listeners. So please don't hesitate. If you're enjoying the podcast, go ahead and do that now. I'm going to quickly read out this uh, wonderful email that I got from a lady called Savannah Calicote uh, from Georgia in the good old United States. And she writes, Hello Chris, I found this podcast about a week and a half ago and I cannot stop listening. I'm already on the Battle of Lakeish and will probably get through at least another three or four episodes before my work day is over. I work a desk job, usually listening to music all day and realised a few weeks ago that there was nothing stopping me from pursuing my interests while at work. I started with documentaries and one day, while looking for one on the Phoenicians, I eventually stumbled upon a YouTube channel that was hosting episodes of this podcast. I was quickly drawn in by the way that you very clearly and no nonsensically state historical events without any dramatisation or sensationalism. I find history plenty invigorating and exciting on its own and was getting quite frustrated by a lot of the other content out there that was stuffed with fluff. I switched from YouTube to Audio Boom after a day because of how out of order the playlists were and I really wanted to start the podcast from the beginning. This is actually the first podcast I have ever listened to. I knew that there was such a thing but had never sought any out before and I have to say I am very glad that I started with yours. Thank you for all the effort that you put into the History of the World podcast because now I'm excited. I get to spend my days listening to my favourite subjects instead of being bored and pencil pushing. I hope to either be an archaeologist or a linguistic anthropologist one day. And for now, I'm biding my time working by day and taking night classes. Listening to your podcast has let me find a happy medium during my everyday life. I've been telling just about everyone who will listen about your delightful show. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. What a, a lovely email. It's an absolute pleasure for me to read that. And um, yes, um, this podcast will now go into a hiatus um, between Volume 2 and Volume 3. I'm going to take a break. So um, I'm going to have a bit of a rest from writing and broadcasting. However, what I tend to do while I'm in one of these hiatuses, I do tend to publish a weekly unscripted podcast just to let you know we're still here. So we um, we continue broadcasting, but we don't write any new episodes, certainly not for another month or two. Um, but um, these unscripted episodes will keep you posted as to when the new volume will start and all the latest news and developments. So um, in the meantime, uh, for Savannah and for anyone else that's looking for a good podcasts to listen to in the meantime, if you visit the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and go to the recommended section, there are a number of podcasts there which I personally recommend. Through my experience, they're ones that have given me a lot of pleasure to listen to and I strongly recommend them to uh, to take up some time and uh, to introduce you to some new podcasts. The podcast world is ever-expanding. There are so many good podcasters out there and you can pretty much listen to podcasts on any subject you want to nowadays. So 
the world of podcasting is really an expanding one and uh, there's so much opportunity to learn now and it's it's an amazing little marketplace so visit the recommended section and find a new podcast to listen to the social media pages will continue to be active uh, there's a discussion forum which I'll be constantly keeping my eye on so if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and go to interact you can go to the discussion forum you can talk about any aspect of history on there or join in one of the existing discussions and uh, we're also on facebook instagram twitter tumblr and youtube if you want to play a little game there's a tiny cards game uh, where you can learn a bit about the history of some of the subjects that have been covered there's not too much on there but it can uh, it can help you to remember some of the aspects of history that have been talked about during this podcast. We've also updated the platforms that um, you can listen to the History of the World podcast and uh, to be honest with you, it gets so out of control I don't think I've got them all. I'm sure I haven't got them all. But you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Deezer, Google Podcasts, iHeart, Listen Notes, Luminary, Overcast, Player FM, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Podcast Republic, Radio.com, Radio Public, Spotify, Stitcher and TuneIn. If you know of anywhere else where you can listen to it, let me know and I'll add it to the list. Well that's it, I'm going to wrap up for this week and that is the end of Volume 2. So once again, thank you so much for joining me on this wonderful journey. Next time we'll be doing an unscripted episode with some updates about what's going to happen in the future and uh, some more updates in terms of the people who've contacted the podcast and uh, some news and details. We'll also maybe cover a few subjects that have come up in the news in the last year since Volume 1 was published. We know that new um, species of hominids have been discovered that probably deserve a moment or two to discuss. Uh, If there is anything that you want me to um, discuss at all, if there's anything you want to bring to my attention, anything you want me to talk more openly about, um, do let me know so that I can make the unscripted episodes as interesting as possible for you and as relevant to what you want to know about. Apart from that, that's all. Thank you so much for listening to this volume. And until... The next volume, volume three of the History of the World podcast, it's Cheerio. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast.com at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.